Welcome back to the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard. Going to our exclusive interview here with Mr. Art Berman of Labyrinth Consulting. Also, well, public speaking back when public speaking was a thing. And then, of course, he's an author as well as an energy and economic expert in many eyes of media across the country. Uh, How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Jason, and I hope you are too. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we had some snow here in Dakota in the last 48, 72 hours. I know you recently did down in Texas. Do, do you guys still have snow, or did that take off right away? Yeah, well, we, we never had snow here in, in Houston, uh, a little bit north of here. But, <clears throat> um, yeah, we're in the 70s. My wife and I uh, picked oranges off our tree in the backyard yesterday, so... <laughs> Uh, a, a different a different world for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about the energy world. Uh, President Joe Biden comes in, signs executive orders. The two that make the headline right out of the gate for the oil and gas world, of course, are the uh, federal lease uh, suspension and the Paris Accord, the climate change, uh, that that part of it, uh, just kind of uh, your reaction to the uh, executive orders and those two specifically, I guess. Yeah, in my view, those are you know thoroughly irrelevant. Both of them, um, they are um, you know it's a it's a it's a political bone that has no consequences one way or another. I know everybody's well. A lot of people in the oil business are upset. Certainly, by the you know the suspension of federal leasing, but I mean the reality, Jason, is that nobody has the money to drill anyway. Uh, very few of those federal lands are viewed favorably by oil and gas companies. I've worked in oil and gas companies for more than forty years. The notable exception, I suppose some of the federal lands in the North New Mexico portion of the Permian Basin. But, you know, the, the, the other piece of this is that um, those suspensions don't, I mean, they, they, they don't modify existing leases. They're, you know, they're, they're forward looking. And, and so my view is uh, industry will be very lucky to have enough money to draw half of what it considers to be perspective in the next year or so. And, History says that um, the only time industry spends money on federal lands in general is when oil's a hundred dollars a barrel. Uh, the Paris Peace Accords, again, uh, you know that that doesn't. I mean, that's that's window dressing. I mean, that's you know that's a talking point. It it doesn't have any you know any short or even medium-term effects on, on, you know, on, on oil and gas activity. Now, obviously, the, you know, the trend towards, uh, you know, less fossil energy is, is something that we all need to pay attention to. But I, I just don't see either of those actions as uh, uh, really having any, any near-term relevance. One of the interesting aspects of the federal lease or the federal ban uh, was kind of what you alluded to a little bit about how there's there's going to be still drilling happening. And there was uh, the article I, I saw in some of the follow-up work I did is there was, there's been quite a bit of stockpiling and, and adding of these leases before it happened where there's something like seven 
four to seven companies have quite a few and to where they've publicly said we've got four years of drilling. I think Devon, Devon Energy was one. The CEO came out and said they've got four years of drilling on federal land alone. And so that kind of made, made me look at the executive order a little bit different um, than, than what was initially the reaction of it. And so your perspective is well needed too. I don't know if you want to comment on that as far as you know, the amount of leases that some of these companies have and, and how there will be drilling on federal land, but it's just a suspension at this point. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think the, the larger issue is that those who who want to you know to get off of oil and gas and uh, coal and uh, you know go to 100% renewable energy or whatever you know whatever exactly their you know their their fantasy is uh, just you know they, they they just don't understand the the fundamental laws of physics and and again I I'm not I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with um, you know, having a long-term goal of reducing emissions, because I, I, I think one way or another, we're going to do it. We're either going to do it voluntarily or uh, the planet and the economy is going to do it for us. But what I don't think people really understand, and that's because they, I mean, I, I use the word ignorant in its literal meaning. I don't use it in a derogatory fashion, but they're just ignorant. And, and the, the unfortunate truth is that if you want to go to, let's just say, an all-electric world, forget about where you get the electricity from, uh, it's going to be a much poorer world. And, and there's, there's no chance of economic growth, and that's simple physics. You just don't get the same multiplier effect on work productivity that you do from oil, natural gas, and coal. And you look back at the, the economic progress, the you know, the progress towards more universal prosperity that the world has seen since the early 1800s. And, and there's one reason, and that is using higher energy density fuels, first coal and uh, then eventually oil and, and natural gas. And so there's a trade-off. That's, that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any way arguing that climate change should be uh, dismissed. I'm just saying that if you go in, if you go in the direction of of an electric economy, um, you're, you're not going to have economic growth. And if that's okay with you, well, that's okay with me too. But I don't think it's okay with most people. They just don't understand. They've been told a lie, basically, by the environmental industry, which is that life just goes on exactly the way that you know it now, except you don't have that nasty oil, gas, and coal. And that's just, that's just defies the laws of physics. It can't be that way. That was one of the reasons I brought up the Paris Accord was more of the uh, ESG, that sort of that environmental movement that has seemed to take on almost a almost like a social governance, if you will, in terms of the before how they used to regulate oil and gas through government. Uh, now there, it seems like they're doing it through social pressures. And that's, I just see how those two are a little bit connected. I don't know if you, you just kind of comment a lot on that, but um, specifically the ESG movement when it comes to investing, how, how do you see those two playing out over this next year or two? 
ESG is a ballroom dance. I mean, that's what it is. It's um, it's in you know it's in faith in vogue right now. Um, it's something. It's a place you want to be and be seen, and and so all the appropriate people are dressed up in their gown and their black tie outfits because that's where we're supposed to be. I I suspect we're going to have a tremendous backlash against ESG and um, renewable energy once the public realizes what I told you before, that it's not the way it's being promoted, that it do, it's going to mean a lower standard of living. Um, and, and my guess on the ESG is that as long as it as long as share prices reward investors, and they and they do right now, uh, for buying stock in those companies, well, they'll continue to do it as they should. Um, but similarly to what happened with tight oil and shale gas, once investors say, "Hey, you know, we're 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 not making the kind of margins and returns we did." Uh, previously, and that's because the price of oil and the price of natural gas stopped rising, they, they look somewhere else. And so at some point, I think that's going to happen with ESG too. But uh, you, can't, you can't fight the market. I mean, uh, people, people do and, and should go where they can make money today. And when that stops working, they'll, they'll find something else. We like to give the example of how industry and people have seen to be just decarbonizing over the last 150 years or so but by their by themselves whether it be through wood hay coal burning whales you know that sort of thing to where essentially we're down to i think it's four hydrocarbons or four molecules with the uh natural gas which is pretty clean uh, where are you at with natural gas in terms of, you know, we've had Tony Clark when he was in charge of FERC, Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission, say that, you know, it's not only the foundation fuel over the next 20 years, but it's also the wild card. Rather interesting statement to make. But um, natural gas, just where, where do you see it fitting in? I I think that we have, I, I think, I take climate change very seriously, and I take it seriously as a scientist. It has, you know, nothing to do with, uh, you know, my, my my preferences or my belief structure or anything like that. And and I mean, we can't we can't just wait for uh, the world to get better. I mean, that, that that's that's what the data tells me, and I know a lot of people. Uh, don't want to hear that, and they don't want to accept it, and they've got all kinds of uh, mantras that have been taught as to why that's, you know, why what I'm saying is incorrect. And, and that's a whole other discussion that, you know, maybe we can have at, at, at some other time. But let's just leave it at this, that the, the data tells me that climate change is serious, and we do have to do something about it. What that something is... You know that 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 that's a whole other discussion. But you know, back to your your uh, reference to Tony Clark, natural gas is clearly part of the solution. I mean, we we simply have to uh, replace as much coal consumption 
as we can with natural gas as soon as possible because, as you said before, gas is cleaner. Now, there are many people that I know and respect, scientists like me, who say, well, no, that's not really true, that there's a tremendous amount of methane leakage that occurs in the, you know, just in the natural process of, uh, you know, flowing the gas to the surface and putting it through meters and pipes and all of that. And that is true. That is absolutely true. And that's, that's a solvable problem. Now, how do you solve it? Again, you know, this is a much larger conversation, but that's a, that's a, a much easier problem to fix than, oh, let's just get off of all of our traditional fuel sources and live in a poor world. Again, I, I don't think, I don't think most people like that option if, if they understand it the way I stated it. So gas is clearly a huge part of the solution. And the biggest problem with solar and wind is, you know, it's not its price. I mean, we hear, oh, you know, the price is coming down. It's, you know, it's practically free. You know, wonderful. Great. Problem is solar and wind together account for about three and a half percent of uh, primary energy consumption. And if it's the greatest thing in the world, you're just not going to get from three and a half percent to anything significant enough to change uh, you know, warming temperatures, no matter what happens in the time we need. So natural gas, it solves that problem because we've got plenty of it. It's available today. It solves the intermittency problem that we have with the solar and wind. I mean, let's use it all. I mean, that's what I say. But let's not, you know, it's, it's not, it's not black and white. It's not either or. Um, we have to balance our need to survive um, with our wish to have a cleaner planet. And, and I think that when, uh, when, when people that don't know energy politicians, uh, we end up making bad choices. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's a solution to that, except uh, data is a solution. And my solution as a scientist and an energy specialist is, Let's move to natural gas. Let's let's help and reinforce the companies that are do are producing it responsibly to solve this problem of methane leakage, and let's then you know move on to the next step. But it's a stepwise process. It's not an on-off switch. That that that's always catastrophic. We need small. We need baby steps to get where we want to go. That's my view. Art Berman is the guest. He's a Energy and economic expert helps companies navigate through some un uh, what's the word I'm looking for some uncertain times I guess by being able to point out some insight and information that allows people to make decisions that they can of course tailor to their own needs. Uh, I know on your website artverman.com. You've got both uh, free and paid content. So uh, give yourself an opportunity here to uh, talk about your website because everybody's having to reinvent how they're making money these days. And a lot of people who used to rely on the speaking industry and, and the books and all that other stuff, they've had to reinvent themselves over the past year. And um, uh, talk about the website. So maybe maybe some people might want to... Uh, give you some business on the website and this and that. I don't know. Are you speaking much these days? I don't know anybody that is. 
uh, only on uh, on Zoom sure. and phone calls like this. Yeah, okay. Um, but, yeah, so parkberman.com, there's a ton of free stuff out there. You do have to register to, you know, to actually see it, but it doesn't cost you a dime. You don't have to give me a, a credit card or anything like that. Just, you know, give me a, a login and a password. And there's years worth of data I've posted uh, to what I believe to be very substantial posts, one on oil and one on natural gas just in the last week. And then there's there's paid content. I do uh, a weekly report on the EIA oil storage information that comes out every Wednesday, you know, talk through and tons of graphs. And then what does it all mean? Aim for natural gas on Thursday. And I've got a, a, a newsletter that comes out once a month that you can pay a little bit of money for and uh, a rig count update that shows you actually, you know, how it breaks down for the various plays. So uh, none of it costs all that much, but it just depends on, on your level of need as always. Hey, one more question before we let, let, uh, let you go and get on with your day and appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight because you know, that's the one thing I do appreciate. Anybody who makes a living on insight, you know, coming on pro- platforms like this and offering, you know, nuggets of information, it's always always good. And, and uh, I do want to ask you about something we've been tracking for a while and, you know, the mergers, acquisitions, centralization, that sort of thing happening in industry. No matter what, p- pick an industry, it doesn't matter. And I mentioned it to U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, who's a frequent guest on the program, and he made a comment that we still cite today because, you know, it was, it, it was pretty, pretty poignant comment. And, and his comment was that if we keep going down the path we're going, we're going to have four companies controlling the global oil market in the next, you know, three to five years or five years, five, ten years. I can't remember the time frame he gave, but very near term future. And um I was kind of taken back a little bit because I, I get there's some evidence there, but at the same time, that seemed a little bit more aggressive than even where my mind was at. So uh, just your thoughts on on that, where the direction we're going with some of that and, and then the U.S. Senator's comments. Right. Well, there, we're, we're clearly in a time of, of consolidation that always happens when prices drop, and, and particularly when they drop in a sort of a long-term way. It's been going on since 2014. We saw it in spades uh, back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, that was the, the time when the super majors um, uh, came into existence and companies like BP bought Amico and Arco and uh, Exxon merged with mobile. So, I mean, that, that that's just the way business works, as I think you, you implied from your, your opening comment there. But as far as Kramer's um, idea that we're going to have four or five companies, I mean, you know, politicians, energy is too complex for them. Uh, it doesn't reduce itself to a talking point. So, you know, the, the simple answer is don't listen to politicians when they uh, tell you what they think is going to happen in, in the oil and gas business. Uh, I guess the more straightforward uh, comment is that, that's just nonsense. <laughs> it's just pure nonsense. I, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, one of your other former senators, uh, John Hoven, uh, wrote an op-ed with John McCain. And, and I, by the way, I mean, I respect all these guys. I'm not, I'm not 
disparaging their integrity or anything. It's just they don't know that much about energy. And, and Hovind and McCain went on and on about how the United States has so much more natural gas than it actually produces. And if only we would build enough pipelines, we'd get to our level of potential. And what they were doing was they were, they were comparing what's called gross withdrawals, which is all the gas you take out of the ground, including carbon dioxide and CO2 and all the things you can't use with what is actually marketed. And so they made a whole op-ed out of something that, for anyone who knows anything about, about natural gas, is just silly. Yeah, your, your, your gross withdrawals are always greater than your, than your marketed production. It's like, it's like saying, oh, well, you know, my, my gross income is so much greater than, than my taxable income. There must be missing money out there somewhere. Well, you know, it's just silly. And so uh, that, that's kind of where I see Kramer's comments. I, I do agree with him that consolidation, as I mentioned before, I mean, it's, it's inevitable that oil prices this low. But no, I, I, I see no way probably within four or five years or even a decade that we're going to be down to half a dozen oil companies in the world.